Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing? Uh, my name's Ryan Hamby. I lead the college ministry of Salt Company right here. If you have not met me, maybe you have, but I lost all my hair this week, so you might not recognize me. I uh, just woke up and it was gone, but sometimes the world is inevitable, you know? You just got to roll with what you've been given. Um, anyway, that's a terrible intro to who I am. Uh, that song is super cool, I think, and I love that bridge of even when I don't see it, you're working, even when I don't feel it, you're working, and it's just so encouraging because a lot of times when you are a Christian for a while and you've been praying for people for a long time and you've been prepping sermons for hours at a time and you've been pouring out for your connection groups and you just don't see the fruit, that you think you're just coming and coming and praying and praying and you just don't see everything that you've been giving your best effort. It's so encouraging to remember what's actually going on, that God is the one who's changing people's hearts. He's actually the one drawing people to himself. And so this morning, I think we need to step up to the word of God expectantly. Uh, For you yourself and the people you're with, that like, hey, God has brought you here for a reason. He has brought you here, um, not just because somebody invited you, not just because it was your bright idea to try out church one day, but like God is actually working in your life. And I think if we approach this morning with that kind of humility and that that posture of, yeah, God, what would you have with this morning? I think we could leave here very refreshed. I think we could leave here with a new mindset that we would see this text as beautiful. So we're going to be in the book of Titus still, finishing out chapter two. And so far, if you've been with us in Titus, you know um, what this is all about, right? Paul is writing to this young pastor, Titus, and he wants to get the church in order, Right, like he want, he's like seeing kind of like chaos, like a little, I don't know if it's anarchy or what, but he's like, hey, there is actually a better way to do this. We serve a God of order, right, who took chaos in the beginning and created a beautiful world and a beautiful cosmos in an orderly fashion. That is actually the model that the church is supposed to take. And so he, he tells Titus to set up elders, right, and he, to do these things in the church local churches everywhere, so that the order and beauty of God will be made known, will be just blasted out to the world in a way that makes him, not us, look really, really good. And last week, Jeff used the either worst illustration of all time or best illustration of all time with the fruit bats. I still don't know which one, but saying how like when he goes to Zambia and he sees like 10 million fruit bats, I just made up the number, is it 10 million? 10 million fruit bats flying through the air, all in their perfect order. It's something to behold, that there is no rogue fruit bat. And I think I'm going with them next month, and I'm actually a little bit scared because I don't want to get attacked by a fruit bat. You're just taking in the beauty of God in his created order. And what if there's a rogue fruit bat? That's what I'm questioning. Like, what what if there's a rogue fruit bat? It doesn't want anything to do with me. Anyway, it's wonderful, and that's what our church is supposed to model themselves after, order after the nature of our God in order to make him, not as individuals, but make him look absolutely amazing. We are to adorn what is good, like put on these beautiful garments. It says at the end of last week's message from, from Jeff, but my, my question for that, the tension I feel with that is, what if you don't really feel like it? <laughs> If you ever feel like you're not allowed to ask that question in church, like you're told what to do, you see that God's word tells you to do something or to live a certain way, but the reality is 
you just leave here not feeling it. And maybe even you like, okay, I know I'm not feeling well. I'm just going to go do it. I'm just going to go put these things into practice. Like be a self-controlled young man. Be a husband or a wife like, like he's describing in Titus 2. But I'm struggling to believe why. And I think we need to enter that tension today because it's really, really important. Like my fear is that we could simply fall in line Right, that we could just hear the good ordinances of God. We could read the Bible in a way that looks like a rule book almost. And we would leave here not actually delighting in the Lord, but being bound to dutiful following. Like we would be bound to just robotic, go through the motions, fall in line Christianity. And I think a couple things could happen there. I think one, you're not going to follow Jesus for that long. I think if we are bound by duty, and we are not delighting in the Lord and not understanding the belief underneath the commands that we are supposed to have, I don't think we're actually going to make it. I don't think we're actually going to follow him for that long. But also, I think we're just going to grow cold and angry. What happens when we don't delight in the Lord, but we just take his word and do our best and put forth our best effort to follow those words? We become cold. And unfortunately, I think we miss the entire point. This is scary because I think that's where a lot of us are at today. Going through the motions, dutifully trying to follow God and do everything he says, but our life is void of delight. We might feel it a little bit from the music, but that delight does not carry us throughout the week. It wasn't supposed to. It's never created to do that. So yes, we are to adorn the good and right ways of God so the world will be drawn to him, but could there actually be a wrong way to do that? I feel the tension mainly because look where we're going in Titus 2.14. I'm going to put that on the screen. This is like the, like the bookend of where we're going today. Paul says this, that the goal of all of this, the goal of this order and living and adorning the right doctrines of God is to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works. Some of your translations might say you are eager to do what is good, right? Like zealous for good works. And so when I think of a cold, robotic, religious following of the rules versus somebody who is zealous and eager to do what is good, there is a massive gap there. There's a massive gap of just nodding along and doing your best to follow the Lord, being as good as you can be with Delight, zeal, eagerness. So we left off what it looks like to be the flourishing, thriving people of God in that order. And he ends chapter two with telling us how we're supposed to do that with zeal and eagerness. And so the great question that we have to ask is what is in between there? What is the foundational and fueling belief underneath all of this for the Christian life? What do we need to know? What do we need to believe? What do we need to do if we're to adorn good doctrine and godliness in a way that actually makes God look great. And just imagine all of these orders for your life, all of these things that the Lord would have us be, just imagine that there was a way to do that that actually delighted your soul, that actually made you happier, that actually raised your countenance. It didn't just make you follow along like this, but it made you dance for joy on the path towards the end. How do we see this, guys? This is the big idea. How are we going to see 
out of Titus 2, the death of duty and the birth of delight. Okay? These are the two truths. If you're writing stuff down, these are the two truths that will see us be liberated from the dutiful Christian life. Okay? The first one is that Jesus has appeared in grace. Jesus has appeared in grace. And the second one, Jesus will again appear in glory. Jeff Dodge has brought a lot of great things to this church since he's come here. One of them being that I didn't know you could write a two-point sermon until he did a few weeks ago. So two points, that's it. Jesus has appeared in grace and Jesus will appear in glory. We're going to unpack that. We have to do spiritually this morning what is impossible to do physically. We have got to look in two directions at once. Let's figure out how to do that. First one, Jesus has appeared in grace. I'm going to read Titus 2, 11 and 12. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Zoom in at verse 11. One word that you got underlined. The grace of God has what? Appeared. The grace of God has appeared. This pulled out of the Greek word, it sounds like epiphany. Right? It's like literally what was not able to be seen has made itself visible. Something that was there but that we couldn't see is now able to be seen. Literally like an epiphany, the invisible became visible. In other words, the God who was always there, the great gift giver himself, has manifested his gift. That word grace, think of it as gift. He's manifested a gift so grand that it is for the entire world. What is the gift? It was actually Jesus himself. Right? It was the great gift of the world that God would actually put on flesh and become a man just like us. And why is it such good news that God would actually want to do this? It says that he brought, what, salvation for all people. That's incredible. That's an amazing gift. Like, we talk about it every week, yeah, but just stop and let that sink in before we move on. Like, that God would give a gift so good for so many people that it would bring salvation to the world. And that says a couple of things. Like, it implies a few things, something profound about this gift. One, it says that all people needed salvation, right? That there's not one human being on this earth alive or who has ever lived before besides Jesus who did not need saving from their sins. Nobody has ascended to God in a way where God says, yes, now you and me are right. Welcome into my dwelling place. No, the sin that has infected the human race from the beginning has spread to all of us. There is nothing that we could do on our own. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. The, the profoundness and the amazing nature of this gift is that we absolutely need it. If you've been a Christian for a long time, remember that. Remember the moment when you realized you needed this. It wasn't just an option to make yourself a better looking person to go to church every once in a while. No, but when you actually saw Jesus for who he was and you understood the good news of the gift that he was bringing you, you realized you needed it. And it also says that this gift was vast and wonderful enough for all to have him. That Jesus hanging on that cross was big enough even for you. 
that Jesus living the perfect life we couldn't live, our gift of salvation and eternal life was presented for us like a gift. And as Jesus was hanged and tortured on the tree, he shed enough of that perfect blood. He shed enough of that perfect blood that whoever, even you, even if this is the first time you're hearing that or the thousandth time you're hearing that and never believed, even you right now, there is enough blood that came off that cross for you today. That's how vast and powerful this gift of grace is. No longer are God's children in the dark because the light of the world has burst onto the scene. No longer are God's children hungry because the bread of life himself, like we're gonna take later communion, was broken for all to partake and be filled and to be healed. The great hope of all time is put on flesh. He died and he rose again in victory. So that lest there be any confusion this morning, this is the greatest gift that the world has ever received or could ever receive. Not only would Jesus come to forgive our sins, he would reign over death forever. This is the grace of God, appearing like an epiphany, bringing us what we need, God himself. As Spurgeon says, may free grace and dying love again be the music that refreshes the church and makes her heart exceedingly glad. In other words, this simple truth, guys, this simple looking back on the cross, at the appearing of the grace of Jesus and all of that implications for our sinful broken lives, would that be collectively the thing that makes us a glad people? Would that be the thing that refreshes us and makes our song sound even better? And so now the question is, what does it look like for us to receive this gift? We're putting it out there. The passage starts with this. What does it look like for you and me to rally around that gift, to rally around the cross and take it for ourselves? An interesting word. Look how verse 12 starts. The word training. Training. Okay, if you've been in, doing this Christianity thing for a while, especially in a connection group around here, you know it's like when I bring forth my sin, when I'm like, hey, I've really messed up this week. I, really, I think I'm far from God. I really need grace. Of course, the people around you, hopefully, you're doing it right, are like, hey, I got grace for you. There's grace for you. The blood of Jesus is enough. And it's almost like they're sliding a pillow under your head and tucking you in at night. Right? It's like this soft, loving, warm, here, have some grace. Put your head on this pillow. But this language doesn't really reflect that, does it? It's not like sliding a soft pillow under your head so that you could rest. It's like taking a pillow and beating you over the head with it. It's training us in grace. It's not telling us first to just lie down and rest and just know, be still, everything is taken care of. No, no, no. When the grace of God invades your life, the first word that he says here that is, it's training. Training. What Paul is saying is that we are to receive the grace of Jesus and to receive him fully, to receive him in all of his fullness, actually looks like a life of training. Grace doesn't always feel good. <laughs> Have you ever wrestled with that? Grace doesn't always feel good, but it is training us for something great. Let me illustrate it like this. Okay, my dad gave me two good things in life. Um, his hairline and his swiftness of foot, okay? He's old, he's like pushing 60. He might be 60, I don't know, but he can run like a deer still, okay? And so what well, that means, I was naturally gifted with good lungs and good foot speed, 
whatever, just a little context for it. It doesn't really matter. But that forced me to, like, obligation of doing cross country in high school, which I just still don't like, still don't like that I did that. Cross country is miserable. <laughs> but I did it. And so I thought I found the perfect out. I was transferring high schools as a senior. Okay, that's not usually great, but it was great for me because that means I could hide. I wouldn't have to go out for cross country at this bigger, faster school. Okay, I was just going to coast and uh, be done with this stupid running stuff. Okay, but the coach heard about this. Okay, he heard about me not wanting to do cross country. He looked up all my times from the past. They weren't that great. Don't worry, but he thought I was at least worth having on the team. And he starts calling me. He starts emailing me. He starts texting me. He starts pestering me. You have to go out for cross country. That's a terrible pitch, okay? And so we started having other people, old alumni, start calling me to like, hey, I really think you should do this. It would help you in life. It would help you with soccer. It's like, what is this? This is so dumb. And so I, the whole summer, I just ignored it. I just completely ignored it. I ran eight miles that summer. I think I counted eight. Um, but by the fall, I was convinced by one way or another Let's go out for cross country. It'd be a good way to make friends, right? So I did it. And I come in here with my eight miles of training. Eight miles. And you're like, that's a, some of you are like, that's a ton. I've never run eight miles. Well, put it in context, the rest of the team, all the guys from our varsity, ran 800 miles that summer. I ran eight. So we roll up. We have about, I think, seven or eight meets that year. In five or six of those seven or eight meets, I threw up violently, like ugly puke. And not like I get done, I give my high fives, I walk over to the bathroom and just quietly, you know, do my thing over the toilet. It's while I'm running every single time. I'm so out of shape. I'm so just messed up still from being out of it, from not training for years that I'm literally going down the line over and over again, just, just throwing up. I know that messes with some people. I won't do that. But like just violently puking and laughing simultaneously because I can imagine what it looked like to see me doing that. And this is, this is what I learned amongst other things as I saw pictures of me doing that. Uh, this is what I learned. Training was absolutely necessary for the reward at hand. Training was not an option if you were to experience the reward at the end. My reward looked a lot different from other people's. It was throwing up. My lack of training led me to that reward. And so in the same way, Jesus is not in the business of just saving you, just check, you're done, you're saved, and leaving you exactly as you, as you are. We come to Jesus with our sin and our brokenness, yes, but does Jesus actually want us to stay in that sinful state forever? Grace might be anti-earning. Yes, like you could never get it on your own. It is a gift by nature, but it has never been anti-effort. This grace by its nature is meant to change us, to train us, to be like Jesus. How does it do that? Let's keep reading. How do we apply this training? Look at verse 12. We are first to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This thing that when we look back on the cross, we gain a new perspective, don't we? That when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, exposed and naked, yet perfect and spotless and sinless, all my sin and shame is actually exposed. 
All of my ungodliness just lays bare before the cross. And I hate it. In the light of the man of glory suffering in my place, I grow to hate my ungodliness. That when I look in the mirror and I see who it is that I would be left on my own, and I look at the cross to the perfect son of God dying in my place, I hate my ungodliness. It creates in me a reaction to this ungodliness that makes me want to renounce it or put my foot on it and stomp it dead, saying no vigorously again and again. All the passions I have that I put before God in my life have taken me away from him, bottom line. That is how it sum up my life of struggling with sin. But now in light of the cross, our small passions can be replaced with the passion for Jesus that knows no end. Our small passions for the things of this world and our sin can be squashed and renounced for the sake of something far better. We can't live for worldly passions anymore, for the passions of the flesh, because they simply will not satisfy our souls. But verse 12 goes on. It says that we are to remove that, yes, to renounce something. Yes, but we're also to put on something new. We are to what? Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives now in the present age. We talked about this last week, that God wants to meet us in our sin. He He desires to lead us to flourishing. The cross teaches us that we don't have to be driven by our unbridled sin anymore. Instead, we can find self-control where we can say no to the lesser things and say no to godliness. Self-control that our desires of the flesh don't have to control us anymore. That the sin that bound us like chains is not actually in charge anymore. But we can have self-control. Instead, we are free, free to live like Jesus did. Not always choosing the easy path anymore. But finally understand that there is a path up a hill that leads to a far more wonderful life. The reason I think Paul is reminding us that this grace needs to train us is that we're professionals at forgetting, right? Like we are so good. Oh, it's so easy just to forget these good things. I mean, yeah, that's why we meet once a week, but is once a week even worth, like, is that even going to work? Like if, that's, if this is all I got every single week, I would forget this. Paul's saying we need to be trained at remembering the cross. Every day, Mark said a few weeks ago, we are naturally bent towards rebellion, right? Like when I wake up, my eyes open, I'm immediately wanting to rebel usually. That's what's natural inside of me. Like I want to see the glow of my phone before like the dull words on the Bible. That's a given. That's what's natural. That's what's easy to do. We want to live for the passions of the world, stuff that isn't godly, but now every day we are to look back at the cross and become professional rememberers. That is our charge, that we would look back at the cross and the finished work of Jesus and become really, really good at remembering that. Remember the cross, the wonderful gift of Jesus, the salvation for sinners that even could save you. The epiphany, the appearing of the invisible God making himself visible and bloody on a cross. What does this training look like? If you need like a practical coaching thing without bringing Coach Dermody up here, just keep it simple. This is what your training this week could even look like. Watch what you eat, right? Nobody who actually is serious about training can just eat whatever they want. 
I have one friend who can bench over 400 pounds, eats McDonald's every day. He's an anomaly, okay? But Brian Dermody eats rabbit food every single day. That's how he trains. You have to care while you train about what you put in your body. So what is it that you are consuming? What is your phone time versus your Bible time? Keep it even simpler right there. What are the things you're listening to and watching and taking the conversations you're having? How are they affecting your passion for the Lord and your ability to renounce ungodliness and put on good? And the other thing that's helpful with, with training, not just what you put in, but just consistency, right? We talk about this all the time of being people who are masters of the restart. That yesterday, you definitely didn't train yourself for godliness. Not a chance. But today is a new day. It is a new day and you can master the restart. Get back in the word and point yourself back to that cross over and over again. Training is doable. It's right in front of us and we can actually do it if we're actually to experience the death of the dutiful life and the birth of delight. The first thing we must be trained to remember is that Jesus has appeared in grace. But if we want the fullness of this good news, Right, like if we want to experience the fullness of everything Jesus wants for us here, we're not just to look back at the cross, we are to look forward to something. Namely that Jesus will appear in glory. That's the second point today, Jesus will appear in glory. Verse 11 points us back toward the finished work of Jesus, the great gift of God the great gift of grace in the world that we so desperately need is needed. But look at verse 13. This is our reward. It says that we, as we're being trained, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 13 is pointing us forward to another appearing. You see that word appearing again? One that has not happened yet. The first we're talking about something that has happened. Now we're talking about something that will happen in the future. This is not the appearing of Jesus in grace as much as it is the appearing of Jesus in glory. Not to offer himself as a sacrifice of sin again. Not to be seen as a humble servant, a sacrificial lamb riding in on a donkey to be killed. But as a conquering king, the lion of power, riding in on a war horse, getting rid of sin, pain, and death once and for all. That is the glory that we're looking forward to. This is the path that grace takes us on. This is what we are training for. One that may be hard, but ends in blinding, wonderful, eternal glory. This is what people often call the already not yet. Okay, if you've heard the already not yet. What Jesus has done for us is complete. Yes, he has died for us. He has risen again. And because of our faith in that, our identity is secure. Our future is secure. But our full realization of that and our experience of that new life is still yet to come. And so we wait. Think of it like this, okay? Your drive is directly correlated to your destination. That's just a principle, right? Your drive is directly correlated to your principle. Every single year for the past five years, I've had the privilege, the honor, and the joy of driving from Iowa City to Southern California, okay? 
So 28 hours, it's not that bad. You get a new car, guys, it's really fun. Um, but there's a massive problem with that trip. It's Nebraska, okay? <laughs> I know we got pastors here from Nebraska. I'm just gonna pretend like you're not here. It is, I mean, Omaha's great, but my goodness, when you get past that small metropolis, you wonder if the apocalypse, ap apocalypse came already. Like, what in the world is there? Like, we are leaving a wonderful place in Iowa City, a place we know and love, all of our friends, our loved ones, it's our home. And we're going to the promised land where there's waves and In-N-Out Burger and sun. And it's gonna be absolutely incredible. Oh, the vacation, the sunburns, the salty, like, in your hair. Dang it. I, <laughs> shoot. Ugh. Um, it's just going to be absolutely incredible. And what I'm saying is, if you are ever going to make it through Nebraska, you better know where you're going or you will never make it. I know I'm being dramatic, but follow with me. If you are driving to Southern California and you know what it's like there, and you know the taste of the In-N-Out double-double that's going into your mouth and that chocolate shake to wash it down, if you have experienced that, and you have a clear picture of what that actually looks like and tastes like and smells like in your mind, a miracle happens. You can have fun driving through Nebraska. It doesn't have to be just boring and lame and painful and begrudging. You can actually find joy in the bleakest places in the world. In the same way, when you know the one who bought you, when you have trained yourself to know this God and to experience him daily and to love him and to delight in his word and to sit with him and to know him as your friend, your father, and your king, your training finds a brand new vision and a brand new fuel, doesn't it? Our faith begins to have eyes and senses that can see where we're going now, that we can almost feel the warmth of the presence of God as we approach the end. And so we look back on the appearing of Jesus in grace on the cross. And simultaneously, we're looking in two directions at the future appearing of Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus has appeared in grace and he has, will, will appear in glory. We were left off from last week with what it looks like to be a flourishing, thriving, orderly people of God. We see the end of this saying that we're to look like a people who are zealous and eager, not just robotically going through the Christian life, but that duty would die and delight would have new life. Now, where are we found in between? We are looking back at the cross and we're looking forward to the sky. And so the question in the end here for us is very simple, guys. Are we the type of people who are zealous for good works? Are we the type of people who are eager to do what is good? Are we a people who are liberated by the delight of following the Lord in all of his ways and all of his statutes? Or are we people who are struggling under the heavy weight of like this dreadful, dutiful grind? Like which one describes your Christian walk right now? Is it like pulling teeth getting you in here? 
and it's a race to get out? Or is it you can't get me out of here because I just feel like being with the people of God, there's something special. It's like, which one is it? Is it I have to set a timer on my Bible reading time in the morning because I might just go forever? Or is it I'm literally falling asleep because I can't seem to do it? That one definitely describes me more, if I'm being honest. Do you have that type of relationship with Jesus where even in the hardest seasons of life, in the most uphill, hard grinds of training, you can find delight? That you could be going 10 rounds in the ring, getting the snot beat out of you, and you could actually still have a smile on your face. Well, as grace trains us to look back, as grace stirs within us this hope as we look forward, be encouraged by how this passage is going to end, okay? Let these words kind of bring you rest. Like if you're feeling heavy and that you're just going through it today, that you want to obey, but you just don't know if you have the fuel to do it, be encouraged by this. Rest, be confident, not in yourself, because honestly, if it was left up to us, we would check off the boxes until we didn't feel like it anymore. My cold heart is actually at fault here. Not the goodness of God. I don't wake up every single day ready to be joyfully trained by this grace. I don't delight easily. But here in verse 14, I think we find some comfort. Look at this. Jesus, who gave himself for us, he gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous, for good works. This is where we land. This is where our duty turns into bliss. This is where our training finds its fuel as we make our way up that hill to our blessed reward of seeing Jesus face to face. How so? Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask us a question. Do you ever, like me, not desire to renounce ungodliness but you actually welcome it into your life wholeheartedly. Does purity with your girlfriend, does drinking wisely or knowing when to cut yourself off or loving unlovable people around you, does that come naturally to you? Is that something you just wake up ready to do every single day? Is it always natural to be patient with your kids or to serve your spouse after a long day of work? Is that what you're looking forward to every single day or is it something that actually feels more like a burden? Is it easy to speak well of everyone all the time to assume the best in love, no matter what gossip you've heard, that you will choose to speak well of the people around you? Is your vice grip on your time and your money sometimes more fierce than you would actually want to admit? Do you jump out of your chair with joy today when you hear the words self-control, uprightness, Godliness. No, of course not. Absolutely not. But this is why these last words of chapter two are so encouraging to me. Because we have not simply been called to a new, higher standard of life. We have been called to a new standard of belief. Belief in what? Belief that the lawlessness and impurity that did define us, we never had the ability to change it on our own. But Jesus, by his blood, redeemed us so we could renounce it. That he bought us with a price, his very life, so that we could have the power to say, yes, 
I am choosing him. We can do what is good and right joyfully because we are no longer slaves to our sins. We can be self-controlled. Think about that, controlling yourself. We can be self-controlled, but why? It's because the God of the universe who brought chaos into order in his hands can bring the chaos of your life and the chaos of this room into order. That you can be self-controlled, not like giving into your unbridled sin, but fighting in a controlling way because you are in the hands of the God who controls everything. We can be eager and zealous to do good because like a good trainer, Jesus is not far from us today. He's up close and personal. We have not been left on our own effort and strife, but God has drawn near. Our God has drawn near and appeared in grace to begin to change us. Our God is coming for us again in glory when our faith becomes our sight and our touch and now he is here guiding us home, training us with his grace, making everybody who is following him more like Jesus. So we can finally put to death the dutiful burden of religion and law keeping and moralism as we begin to experience the bliss of joyful obedience to the one who actually gave himself for us. This is today, Veritas, the death of duty and the birth of delight in following Jesus. Let's pray. God, would you refresh us this morning? There's pain in this room, there's sadness, there's just real life that is happening. And all your words in Titus are so good. They're bringing us to fruitful, thriving, flourishing. And we're seeing that, God, but would you take us that one layer deeper and tell us why? Would you take us that one layer deeper and tell us how? Would you assure our souls that we believe in Jesus who makes all of this possible? who paid the ultimate cost on the cross and has promised to return and bring us home one day. So right now, God, as we are on that grind, as we are doing church, as we are living life as sinners amongst other sinners, we would have confidence and joy. Not to bulk up our resumes and to make ourselves look good, but to simply delight in the Lord and follow him with every single thing we got. Amen.